on the air and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. The Space Adventure is on your case. Oh! Reading Starfighter. You have been recruited by the Star League to defend the frontier against Zur and the Kodan Armada. Get ready? Prepare for blastoff. Okay, let's go. Today on The Essential Soundtracks, you'll hear as Eric Woods and I discuss one of my all-time favorite films from the 1980s, The Last Starfighter. We'll discuss some background on the film, talk about some of the unique elements of the score, as well as talk about Craig Saffin and his work on the film music. So sit back, relax, as the show begins now. Randy Andrews, and you may have noticed something new today. The uh, title of the show is The Essential Soundtracks. Uh, The Essential Soundtracks is going to be the name on Cinematic Sound Radio. Soundtrack Alley is a separate podcast that will be through Soundtrack Alley. Uh, So, as on Cinematic Sound Radio... Uh, that is what it will be called, is The Essential Soundtracks. And of course, joining me today is Eric Woods. Eric, how are you, and when did you see this film? Uh, it's been a while, Randy, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it has been a while. Um, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I don't know how many people have known, I'm just, I'm trying to get better from, uh, from a, some, an illness, I had strep throat and just, you know, the, the biggest thing that's happening right now is trying to control my breathing issues. It's just really nagging. So, but, you know, I've done a couple of other, uh, you know, live streams and other podcasts and things of that sort. It's still a little bit difficult to kind of get through a long talk, but, um, I'll mute out all the coughing and, uh, we'll just try to get through, uh, through the show so that you can just hear the essential soundtracks and, and not my, uh, not my coughs. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great though. Um, uh, you know, today we're talking about the last starfighter. Um, one of the key, I'd say one of the key movies of the 1980s. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, it's, 
for for someone my age, um, you know, 1984, probably 1985 is when I saw it on video. You know, I'm nine years old and just impressionable. And I'm just lapping up these magical 80s films that just send my imagination, you know, to overdrive. And I'm talking about the Explorers and then, you know, the Goonies in 1985. Of course, there's Star Wars. Just all these wonderful movies where you or at least myself as as an you know an audience member watching this and a, and a kid watching this you know, you're just sucked up into the adventure and it's it's somewhere where you'd like to be you know you want to be Han Solo or Luke Skywalker or you want to be you know one of the three kids building a spaceship and going out into space and and or you know with Tron getting sucked up into a computer program and experiencing that but the last starfighter uh was just was such a unique experience because it felt like it felt like a Steven Spielberg film, you know, a Spielberg film that he didn't make. Um, and, and those kind of Amblin entertainment types of films really stuck with me. And so when you're thinking about Amblin, you're thinking of, you know, back to the future, uh, young Sherlock Holmes, um, Hoover and Roger Rabbit, all those wonderful, imaginative, creative films. And this one just had a perfect story aimed at kids my age. You know, when you think about, you know, video games and in in arcades, I mean, you just, you spend hours just feeding quarters to these machines. But then when you think about it, maybe they are a test from you know, an extraterrestrial and a, and a planet in under siege. And they're looking for, you know, some of the, the bravest skilled pilots to help, you know, with their war and save their, um, save their race. And that, that was just so fantastic. But I mean, you, you just don't pick up on that until, um, Centauri shows up and tells you, you know, that was the reason for the, uh, for the video game. But Everything about even the beginning of this movie just kind of just sucks you into Alex's world of just living on this, uh, you know, this this trailer park and, you know, these a whole bunch of different characters living there and just the the innocence of it all and 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 it just seems so wholesome, friendly, unpretentious. It just seems like another one of those movies where it's like the 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 normal teenager who's yearning for something better finally gets to experience something extraordinary. You soak it all in. But the other thing that works extremely well is that there's the characters work, the actors work, the chemistry between everybody works. And so it just feels, it feels real. And even though there's a lot of comedy, lightheartedness in this film, it also feels like it takes the the subject matter seriously. And, you know, you go along for the adventure. 
and it's a wonderful adventure and it's one that I'm always happy to to return to. So yeah, when I saw it when I was nine on VHS, you know, in my parents' living room, uh, I was just sitting up on the floor, cross-legged, my eyes wide open, my jaw on the floor. It was, it was like a Star Wars film, but just aimed at kids my age that sort of felt like this could actually happen, where Star Wars was this intergalactic adventure that took place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You almost felt like this is the sort of things that you would love to have happen to you as a kid so that you can just kind of escape your your real world and go on a grand adventure. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the same feeling that I got. Uh, I was enthralled with this film. Uh, it was, in fact, like once it finally came to television and I recorded it, I think it made a special appearance on Disney and I was able to record it on Disney when my dad had subscribed to it back way back in the day. And uh, I wore out the tape. <laughs> like I watched it so much that I could recite the lines and I knew every scene, every detail. And when people would ask me or when people would tell me things that would happen in the movie or things regarding the movie, I'd say, no, no, it didn't happen that way. It was this because I'd watched it so much. And it was just this big, grand space adventure. And you were like, just like you said, you, you get wrapped up in these characters and some of them are very comedic. Uh, the old lady that always was trying to watch her soaps or the old uh, old guy that just was, you know, there and he was a really nice guy to everybody and and he would really, like, give Alex some good advice. And, um, and it's like you got to grab hold with your two hands and you got to hold tight. And, um, and it was... And those type of lines were so real, so grounding for even us as impressionable youth as we were, because it created in us those dreams to be able to really grab hold of our dreams. And I just, I love every aspect of this movie, even like you look at it now in the CGI that was back then to now, it's totally different, totally, you know, but it, it <laughs> the crazy thing was, was it felt like a video game. Like it felt like you were inside a video game and it felt like the same feelings as Tron. Like the same technology, maybe a little bit better technology for the animation and stuff of what they used, but so many good things about this movie just like stand out to me it's just oh it's just it's an amazing really fantastic movie and i mean sure it doesn't hold up the the special effects definitely don't hold up but so many things in the movie do hold up and uh and i think uh certain characters really 
like we can reach reach out to. Like you mentioned Centauri. And Centauri, which was Robert Preston, he had been known for the music man. And um and this was kind of kind of a last hurrah for him because he didn't get many acting roles even after this this um this film. Um he did a few more, but he died uh quite a number of years ago and um but he was one of those like uh, <laughs> like the way it was put was he was like this fast talking space salesman you know he was trying to sell the idea of becoming a, a part of the legion of the star league and uh and it just so many things about him, about the car. Can we talk about the car? <laughs> the star car. I mean, it was based on the DeLorean, and it had the gullwing doors, but it had, like, this sleek, like, almost clean outside to where you couldn't see any entry. And that was one of the coolest things about it. Yeah, I, I, I love the car. Um um, Centauri, yeah, he, um, he's an interesting character and, and, and he almost, I'm, I'm not sure whether he comes across as, I'm not sure he comes across as like the father figure that Alex might not have had. But what I do remember is that as much as he's like this intergalactic traveling salesman slash recruiter for Rylas, um, he can't convince Alex to stay, which is, which is quite unique. I mean, in star Wars, Luke just says, yeah, you know, after my, his uncle and aunt are burnt to a crisp, he's like, yeah, I want to learn the force and let's get going. And, and Luke doesn't look back. Whereas, you know, Alex is terrified, which I thought is really interesting because he didn't, he didn't know what he was signing up for. And he actually didn't sign up for this. You know, he's just playing a game and he's really good at it. But then, you know, he he actually rejects him. And then you can see Centauri's disappointment and something that he didn't expect to have happen. And which I thought was was clever uh, from the script. And then, of course, as we go on a little bit further, you know, we realize that Alex is is needed. Alex wants to go. But, you know, as much as I say that, yeah, I'm a kid and I would love to have this have happened to me. It's like, you'd be scared to death if you were all of a sudden whisked away into space and told that you got to fly a gunstar and, you know, destroy the bad guys like that. It's terrifying. So yeah, I, I love that little aspect of it. You know, like one of my favorite moments early on is, you know, him playing, Alex playing the game and beating the record. And again, you're not a hundred percent sure what that means in the real world, but it just seems like it's, it's one of those small it's an wins. epic moment. It is, but it's a small win that Alex needed because he's just completely and utterly down on his luck. You know, he's pretty much stuck looking after the trailer park. Yeah. And you know, he's he having to, to fix this, this and yeah, that. Incredibly everything. responsible kid for his age. And, you know, instead of going off with his friends, he has to stay back and as much as it kills him to do it, he has to stay back and help somebody with their 
you know, the cable or the electricity or whatever. And he has to give up on being a kid. And as much as he's a teenager, you know, it's just giving up on those, those life moments to, to be an adult. Not only that, though, but he was also pretty mature for what he was doing because yes. he was like he was like you and your your friends you're you're going out you drink you know you you do all this stuff and it's like what does it get you you know he's like he's looking at it from a different perspective because he's like i want to do something with my life you know he doesn't want to stay in that trailer park and that's why he was trying to get into that college or whatever um because that was a goal for him and when he didn't it just uh it really ruined him in a lot of ways. But with the idea of the game, it kind of gave him, like you said, a small victory. Yeah, but it always, most of the film, though, does come back to Alex's responsibilities to his family and protecting his family. And that happens in the middle of the film when he returns and then is attacked and Centauri tells him that, you know, the only way to protect his family on Earth, because the Kodan Armada has already destroyed the Starfighter base. I think that's what it was. And, you know, they're not going to stop there and they're going to come for Earth. And then that's where the stakes are raised. Get higher. <laughs> and, yeah. And Alex is like, okay, I'll go and help. But then he doesn't realize that he's actually the last Starfighter at that, <laughs> excuse me, at that point. So, you know, there's, there's these earned moments that, you know, again, he's just not thrown into battle and he's, He's already 100% awesome. And again, throughout the film, he's always constantly learning. And he's not perfect right away. And, and, I, and I love that. I love it, you know, even though he's a you know, crack shot at the last Starfighter on the arcade version, you know, he's still trying to get used to the controls and the Gunstar and, and, and the responsibility of it all and, and the, the real-life implications. I think there's... There's a lot more in this movie than than what people give it credit for. It's not just kind of on the surface. There's a lot of uh, deep meaning in here that resonates, and um, and I think it's it's incredibly well put together and pulled off. Yeah, I I definitely agree. Um, there's so many aspects of this movie that are really unique. Like there's these little neat little tidbits of information that we get from like trivia and different things like they talk about the atari system and uh how there was a you know they wanted to make a video game for it and then they couldn't because they called it solaris um because they couldn't get the the game controls to work right and uh (laughs) And then, um, like, they tried to have a line of of action figures. Um, you can still find them on eBay, but <laughs> they're... Oh, really? Yeah, they're, they're on there, but they're, like, $500. <laughs> but it was like, you know, they put them in two packs, and they had, like, characters like Maggie and Centauri and Grieg and Zur and Krill and... Uh, a Kodan and a tentacle, the tentacled starfighter and a Zandozan and an Enduran. And it, it's just, it's so funny because it's like they, they, you know, they couldn't produce it because 
it just it didn't raise enough money at the time to create a better like uh engagement of the characters um even though the you know movie was fantastic <laughs> and was, the movie yeah. was only shot in 40 days yeah it, well and it it just underperformed um and that's that's where which is sad it is but it i mean it eventually became this cult classic but i mean again i wasn't taken to the theater to see this so but i mean then again i didn't i didn't go to the movies all that often when i was a kid i mean i saw a lot of the stuff but as i said this one grabbed a hold of me immediately and you know when i you know grew up and i was able to find it again you know and on VHS and own it and watch it. It was like, I, it was like I'd watched it yesterday. You know, all the same feelings came back. And again, this, it, it, it's a movie that, that has heart, genuine heart. It, 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 none of it seems like saccharine. It, it, everything in this feels earned. And I just, I really do wish it, it did well. I don't think we needed, a sequel, but I just wish more people around that time would have appreciated it. Would have appreciated it because again, you're 1984 and yeah, 1984 was a big year for movies. It was, but you're also coming off of star Wars Mm -hmm. and that's all anyone was comparing this to. And it's, it, there are some similarities, but it's, you know, it's its own story and it's, and it definitely doesn't look like Star Wars um, because of the special effects. And I mean, we were talking about how, of course, they look dated today, but I mean, that was revolutionary for its time. Mm-hmm. I mean, besides, exactly. I think besides Tron, this was one of the first films that was using, you know, computer generated effects um, the way it was uh, being used. And and I mean, it. I don't know how they managed to pull it off. I mean, yeah, sure, some of it feels a little clunky, and but there's other shots. There's like that um, when they first um, take off, and they're kind of going through that. It's not a time tunnel, but it's like a wormhole. And there's just some beautiful, beautiful imagery. I think if they took their, if they had more time, they could have, you know, added more textures, better lighting. I would say this. You know, out of all the things that have gotten special editions and redone special effects and and whatever, I I I wish they'd throw some money. It's not. I'm not saying that they have to replace this film. This this film has a place in history. This version of the film should always be shown. But I think for the fans to kind of get a a sense of what it could look like, maybe with more passable special effects and visual effects. I mean, it would cost a lot of money, but could you imagine what this would look like if it had like, even if they took the time and care as much as they did for when they were um, uh, redoing the special effects for Star Trek, the original series, something along those lines where if you can make it look like as if you're using, you know, they had access to ILM in 1984, what kind of special effects in The Last Starfighter could you use just to kind of give it that, clean it up and give it an update? And I think that would be fantastic. It would be magical. Uh, that would be a lot of fun. And, I, and I'm and i wondering whether that would bring more people to the film. Because 
We talked about Star Trek V a long time ago, and you know one of the reasons people stay away from that is because the special effects are so shoddy. It's one of the biggest gripes about that movie. But I think that if William Shatner had got ILM and had got proper special effects, I think that film would be appreciated a lot more than what it is. So I think that for its time and for what they were trying to do and the amount of time that they had to do it, I mean, it's quite impressive that they managed to pull off that many shots and make it look somewhat convincing. Well, and I think another thing about this movie that makes it so real, um, Nick Castle directed the movie and he had done Halloween 2. The amazing thing about it is even the practical effects, like the creature effects, I think are pretty spot on. They're they're really well done. They have really good creature effects and even with the the alien that I talked about earlier for the the one of the figures they wanted to make the the tentacled uh, looking alien, uh, Alex at one point steps on his feet and and he like shoots up and is like yelling at him and <laughs> and it's 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 so real like it looks so so amazingly real and you could just see him be that upset but then also look you look at the practical effects of even the star car and how they you know also used like it as a visual effect they built a physical one and then uh they covered it over with sheet metal and then the car didn't move very fast and it sounded terrible uh but like a lot of it was changed with like sound effects and the digital care of what they did with the the star car and like i mean they were able to take lessons from tron you know of how they did like the digital rendering of certain things like the bikes and the ships and things in the computer world and they they changed it to be like motion blurring and they made it look even even still kind of real even though it was in space and it didn't you know like seem to fit so well but it it did it it just it it held up for the effects that they were able to use so i i found that kind of cool oh yeah and i i don't want any of this stuff replaced it should be there um, you know, anybody that's working in special effects or CGI effects should really be looking at this film as, as a historical moment. I think that's what makes it really special. I mean, it's, it is a special effects spectacle, but it has the story to back it up. And they did a, I mean, a masterful job in their casting of, uh, you know, Lance Guest and Catherine Mary Stewart, who, I mean, I just had the biggest crush on when I saw her on the screen. <laughs> it's yeah. like, holy smokes. Yeah, that's the that's the girlfriend I want when I'm... She was pretty when, good in oh. um, Night of the Comet. Yeah, and, and but they just seemed... Um, the, the relationship felt real, like they'd been together forever. Like they, they'd known each other since they were kids and they've grown up and they were going to... They're going to spend their life together. And you can tell easily, and again, it's Catherine Mary Stewart and her acting. You can just, you can just see that when Alex can't go with them after uh, you know being called back to to fix a few things 
at the trailer park, you know, she's not angry. She feels for him. That's projected. And it could easily have been a, a conflict as much as it does become a conflict when the beta unit shows up, which is actually quite humorous. Um, but that could have easily destroyed that relationship. But the genuine real relationship between Alex and Mags, I, I bought it right from the beginning and selling that um, right off the bat. I think that's a difficult thing to do. And Nick Castle did a great job and had two great actors pulling that off. And those key scenes at the beginning of the movie pay off at the end where, you know, both of them are willing to give up their lives on earth to go off and, and help save uh, the universe. And that's what makes, you know, their relationship is their relationship feels real. You care about them and that's all you want out of your characters. You, you got to have the audience actually care invested. Oh, absolutely. And that's where all the feels come from. And then of course you got, you know, the music and the sound effects and all that working in perfect harmony. I mean, that's, it's, it's an ending that is about as emotional to me as, you know, the, the ET ending is a couple of years earlier or, um, you know, any numerous brilliant emotional endings that, James Horner ever worked on it's up there for me it just hits me right in the feels and I go back to that end scene constantly and we could probably talk about this once we get into the score but it's a very very special finale I think it Again, is especially for it a is. very impressionistic um nine-year-old kid watching it <laughs> yeah because you know what as much as I want to be Alex Lewis steals the scene just with, you know, one look up and a and 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 one word saying "wow," it's like, man, yeah, that that's me right there. Yeah, and and looking at it from his perspective, it's a bit different. And uh, like the scene with the beta unit, and he is like fixing his head, and uh, Lewis is looking at it, and he's like, "What? In, what's going on?" And he's like, "Lewis, you're having a nightmare." Yeah. Go back to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, and it's a great, and like it's I said, the, the humor, the humor works. It doesn't seem out of place. And, um, yeah, I yeah, love that scene too. Fantastic. And like, I mean, we could go on and on about different scenes that we love, but like, uh, I think one of the, the reasons we love this movie so much is because the score works so well in the film. Saffin worked super hard on this this score and I loved there was a there was a comment he made in the interview I had done with him uh, he said the themes that he picked were very simple but he chose a few themes and worked with those themes to where he could use like the main theme and make it sound sad or sound it happy 
or make it sound uh, adventurous or sound um, climactic. And, you know, he used those basic themes in multiple different ways and using um, the electronic uh, elements with synthesizers. And he didn't, you know, entirely use synthesizers. He mainly used an orchestra. And it just, you know, it, it, it was just one of those amazing scores that sticks with you. Like, I can think of it right now in my head of how good the score really is. And, uh, and it just, you know, like certain themes will stand out, like, like Mag's theme or Alex's theme or, or even the Starfighter theme. Uh, those three themes are very, they stand out dramatically. And then you have the key, like, minor themes of, like, the trailer park or the people of the trailer park. And then you have Rylos, and especially the one one character that I don't think gets quite enough love is Centauri. Centauri's theme is so unique uh, for his character because, you know, I mean, this is this is uh, Robert Preston we're talking about, you know? It's like, it's like they... Re- Craig Saffin really had to sell it. He had to really, like, bump up the, the, the level uh, because he was, uh, you know, he, he had this charisma about him and I mean he was 64 in the movie and a lot of people thought he was much older and uh, it's too bad that he died four years later but um, he just he he played the role so well uh, that having Centauri's theme uh, so iconic uh, you will always think of Centauri as Robert Preston there could never be a remake of The Last Starfighter with someone else because you would always think of Robert Preston as being that character. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about like a remake of The Last Starfighter, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh no, they can't do it. But then again, they no. they, they, they they remade Jumanji, and it was mm-hmm. actually quite clever. I'm just trying to think of how they would do it, <laughs> how they would do it, and how you'd capture that that innocence. I just I I I could see them trying to do it, but there I just there's not an audience for for this. 
And I don't think kids these days feel the same way. They couldn't way that identify we, it. Yeah, they're, they're doing their own thing. And it, it's like, you know, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't see this. Uh, I think the difference is like the difference between like Ready Player One and something like a remake of The Last Starfighter or creating something called Armada. Uh, it just, it wouldn't work today. No, because and it's of such the a generation. I mean, as much as this film has a cult following, I think it's a small um, group um, rather than, let's say, you know, the fans of Blade Runner, um, where you can expand on that universe. I just, I mean, one of the worst ideas would be a sequel. Um, it just, yeah, I mean, they should have thought about the sequel 20 years ago. Um, or even earlier than that. I, I, again, I think it stands alone perfectly. I can tell my own sequel story in my own head. I, I, it's just, it, it's this small little corner of this eighties nostalgia wonderland that I appreciate. And I'm just kind of glad it's there and it's own little thing. And, and, you know, people have moved on, but you can always go back and revisit it and, and you know, experience those same feelings that you had. And you're right, um, Craig Saffin's score is a masterpiece. And again, he, much like the film, is is fighting against criticisms of of his score sounding like Star Wars. And and so I th- personally think that this is about as different from Star Wars as you can get, even though he's using a massive massive symphony orchestra but he's using an array of of electronics and he's he's writing in a different way um he had mentioned in the the liner notes of the the entrada album where you know williams is showing an affinity towards english masters with his orchestrations like gustav holtz safin turned to sibelius um who which created. is brilliant. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's it's so good. Like, I've listened to some of the uh, pieces that Craig Safin had told me about with Sibelius, and I was like, wow, that is something. That is really, uh, that's perfect. It, it's perfect for what he was trying to pull off. Absolutely. And so that's where you can have that, massive symphony orchestra which was all the rage back then i mean i think even nick castle said you know i couldn't bring in a a barrage of like you know rock and rollers guitars and drums and and try to you know play something modern over top of this he would have said he would have got fired this is the type of film that needed that sweeping main theme um you know those heavy action cues and that sense of yearning you know Alex is looking towards the future and actually not knowing where he's he's going to be although he looks at the the stars and the planets in his room and and that inspires him and but he's also thinking about you know where he's going to end up in his life and he's kind of at a crossroads and he doesn't know where he's going to go and that's where the humanity of this score comes out and it, and as you said Safin can take his main theme and just twist it and move it around and play it in different time signatures and it all mean different things. It's something that Jerry Goldsmith is very, very, or was very skilled at doing, was able to take one theme and just 
transform it into a love theme or an action theme or or whatever and so and that's what also helps make the theme memorable i mean it's not overplayed but it's played enough that you kind of get a sense of what it is and of course you get the great main title so you can hear it right away but he's able to pick a pick it apart and use it in different variations i also kind of like his more i'm gonna say kind of like staccato style there's a lot of like hits and beats and stops and starts, and you hear that in Remo Williams as well. It's not so fluid might be the wrong word, but I hope you understand that, except for maybe um, Alex's first test, you know, which has those running strings and it feels like it's a fluid piece of music, but this one feels like it's a little more, like especially in the action music, really kind of staggered and, and you know, lots of orchestral hits and, and you know, big, big brass blasts and hits on percussion and things of that sort. So, I, you know, the comparison to Star Wars, I understand it, but I think that's cheap. And I really do think that Safin managed to make this score stand clearly apart from what John Williams was doing, but also still write that large-scaled, symphonic, sci-fi, adventure, space opera score, but really, really make it his own. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And there's so much to... Like, we'll we'll talk about some of these cues, um, because... I guess like 75% of the score is the main theme, which is really interesting because he was able to twist it so well. Like there is a scene where Alex is um, sitting in his room and he's looking up at the uh, mobile of the universe or not the universe, but the solar system. And he's like mouthing the words of the people that are outside. Yeah. It's that his mundane bad. life. <laughs> it's his mundane life and he's thinking about that but then, you know, the scene shifts but uh at that point Craig Saffin he uses that main theme with Alex's theme. Like he, like he blends those together and creates this unique piece of music that is like a dream-like moment for Alex. So let's really get into some of the cues for the movie.
some of the key cues that really stand out, uh, and Craig really, I mean, he just pulls out the stops for, like, embracing that large orchestral synth combo, you know, for the score. And first, I think it's, like I was mentioning, uh, we're going to talk about Alex Dreams and Record Breaker. And those two, like, tie together because, you know, Alex is dreaming of his future, of what he could do. And then he's like, he, he wants to get out of his rut. And so he goes and plays the game. And I have to say this because of my love for the score, but this cue is melodic and rich with such a sense of colors for the instruments being presented in the score. Um, it's simple, and yet it gives us the main theme in a lyrical and a calm, like, wistfulness. I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, when Alex looks up, you know, to that solar system mobile, it gives him a sense of, like, determination and time to think. And I love how Safin uses the flute and the French horn to really stand out in this cue to give us, like, the prelude to the main hero theme for the film. And and that comes out when he's playing the video game. Um, what did you think on this cue? Yeah, the Alex Dream cue, I mean, you said it perfectly. It is... It's 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 like I said. It seems like it's right out of a, a Spielberg movie. You know, your your main character is is stuck, kind of trying to look forward and see his future, and doesn't really know where it's going to be. And you know, as much as he's looking up at the, you know, the the planets in the solar system, it's more of a you know, a metaphor for him, just like, I want to get out of this, this, this small community and go out to the big city and explore and, and really find out who he is. And, and the music conveyed during that scene, is just so tender. It's that B theme of Safin's that he uses. It's just, it's tender. It tugs at the heartstrings. I mean, as much as it, feels like it's he's he's kind of yearning um it also is incredibly sad because as you said you know he's he's mouthing the words of the neighbors and it just seems like that's just the everyday thing and that's the that's his mundane life it's everyday wake up not getting to be what he wants to be whatever that is and he's just kind of stuck and he feels like he's going to be stuck there for the rest of his life because he is a responsible teenager and he feels like he needs to help take care of his mom and his brother and and Mags and then the whole community because the whole community is the family. It's like a family to him. So it's tough to it's tough to say goodbye. And so you get all that within within the cue that that Safin writes, but then all of a sudden when we get into the record breaker where Alex goes back to his the thing that he's good at playing the last Starfighter arcade game and he you know he picks it up and he's just kind of there's 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 no goal but all of a sudden he's having just the game of his life 
And it starts off kind of slow, still exciting, but kind of minimal in the orchestration. But then as the game continues, and as we realize that he's going to break the record, there are more instruments added, and and the excitement is 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 ramped up until we finally see him, you know, beat and break the game. And Safin is playing it like a traditional action cue. So everybody's excited on screen, and we as the audience, you know, we're watching a guy playing a video game, but he's up, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? But it's it's exciting and it means something, and it's almost foreshadowing what's going to happen later on. As much as Alex has no idea what it really means, he breaks the record, everybody's happy, he's proud of it. It's something that, you know, it's an accomplishment for him, but it there are bigger things ahead. And, you know, Safin will, will play similar music later on when he's in a real uh, Gunstar and with real life consequences and, and danger. And so it's, yeah, it's, di- it's dynamite writing. I, I absolutely love it, and yeah, there, there's just two great contrasting emotions that are happening with these two cues. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that really gets me about the scene in the movie is the energy behind it. It gets spread through the whole community, and uh, and it just, like, this energy of the crowd, that's, like, with... Craig Saffin's music, it like builds your anticipation to see him continue and to win and and it's like everybody is like that energy is just all there and it's like, yeah, you know, you're just you're you're amped up just with the music and of what is happening on screen. And it's just it's a brilliant combination of uh film directing as well as the work along with the score. It just, it works perfectly. I think what's so great about it is that it's like the highlight for everybody within that community. You know, for anybody else, it's like, oh, great, you beat the high score in arcade game, but uh, everybody's invested. It's something special. It's a story that they can tell tomorrow um, because they might not get out very often. And so finally something exciting has happened here and it's happened to someone within their own little community. And even Mags is excited. Um, and, and I think that's, and again, that goes back to that relationship. She is genuinely excited and happy for her boyfriend. I mean, it could be the most cheesy thing in the world, you know, this high score victory on a video game that really essentially means absolutely nothing um, in real life. But she's excited for him. She's excited that he's he's smiling, he's happy, she, and 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 that makes her happy. And you know she's there for for the long run with with Alex. And and again, that dynamic, that relationship, the chemistry between the two of them, it pays off at the end of this film. And so you need that. And I and I really like the way that they tackled their relationship uh, in this film. Mm-hmm. I agree. So let's go ahead and play Alex Dreams and Record Breaker.
Next, I thought we could cover two cues together since they go really well together. That would be target practice and Alex's first test. Now these really show like the initial phase of Alex really taking on the starfighter role because this is after he had returned to Earth and after his battle with the Zandozan. Or not really that but yeah i guess it was because um he gets shot at and then the beta unit is there and he's getting shot at and the xandozan doesn't know which is which and um and it's just it's it's really unique because alex is now in space having to take on this role and he's being trained by grig which by the way, Grig is one of my favorite characters in the movie. Mm-hmm. And he had to do like uh, exaggerated expression just to get movement in that mask that he had to wear, the prosthetics. And I, I think the banter between those two is just fantastic. And they work really, their chemistry is really good on screen. I think, yeah, I mean, they just, they were a really great match. And I think uh, <laughs> my uh, favorite line from Alex is, great, I'm a million miles from home and this alien is telling me to relax. <laughs> and the brilliance and the excitement 
uh, that are instilled in these cues is just fantastic. It's energetic, it's electric, it's exhilarating, and and he's just shooting targets. And then finally, there is the test. Zur ship, one of the the scouts, comes out of nowhere and he's having to go up against a live target. And and Grig tells him, This is your first live target. And he's like, Live? And He's like, wait a minute, I'm about to take a life. And he didn't, you know, he hadn't even really considered this to be a ending uh, scenario. He didn't, he hadn't thought that far ahead to think, oh, I might have to actually kill someone. <laughs> and, uh, and it, you know, it, it's a really good lead up to the confrontation with Zor and the command ship. Yeah, I, um, I, yeah, I love these two cues. Target practice again plays on the ideas of, you know, Alex back on Earth playing the actual um, arcade game, and so he's, you know, trying to figure out the controls. I love it when he, um, he can't figure it out, but he has to take his gloves off, mm-hmm. and so he's bare hands on the controls, and then all of a sudden he, he starts doing extremely well, and um, again, it's. Um, Safin's just kind of playing up the the fun of the moment, and I think that's we needed we needed that before it got too serious. You know, we just had to see him somewhat, you know, enjoying this this video game come to life. That's it's exactly what it is. Like I cannot, I'm sure he can't believe that he's you know behind the controls of a of a gunstar, and I mean that would also be very surreal for any of us. For, for, for that to happen. So I love that. And then Alex's first test, as I mentioned, a much more fluid track that has these running strings, but again, these big blasts and heroic fanfares. Really, really exciting. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite cues from the score. Very much so. Because I love the different orchestration. It ramps up the excitement before we finally, before we get to the you know the final battle, which is much more deadly serious, but I think Safin understands the feeling that the, the kind of the nervous energy that uh, Alex has while going through this, but it's also a sense of fun, not so much a dream come true, but he's like I said, he's behind the controls of a, a video game come to life, and I'm sure that would be exciting for anybody. In that moment and so you really feel that with these two cues yeah so let's go ahead and play target practice and Alex first test Thank you. 
Next on the show is Death Blossom, or also the slash ultimate weapon. Uh, the buildup for this piece is all in the beginning with those bombastic horns as well as the unique synth chords highlighting the intensity about what they're about to do. They're about to go up against the command ship. The ship keeps getting pounded, uh, like their ship, the Gunstar, gets, uh, keeps getting pounded by lasers, and very soon um, it stops because they're no longer able to like do anything. They're waiting for them to kind of be drawn in. And the Starfighter fires the ultimate weapon, which disables most of the larger ship, uh, as well as taking the power from their ship. So the power returns, and they destroy that central hub of power from Zur's command ship, and it sends it into the moon and destroys them. And (laughs) I think the best line... For that whole scene is when that command ship is actually going into the moon. Uh, one of the lackeys is like, "We're we're being we're caught in the moon's gravitational pull. What do we do?" And the lead commander, his little eyepiece goes, and he's go and he goes, "We die." Yeah, <laughs> and I love that line because yeah. it's just it's so like final. Mm-hmm. We're not escaping, we die. Which made it so much better uh, for seeing how Craig arms us with this tense music and then shows the ultimate danger to our heroes, but also the finality of Zur's command. Because Zur is no longer commanding that ship. He, of course, escapes, uh, leaving things open. However, we get Craig's a really boisterous orchestra to give us our finale to the villains to show that they're finally destroyed. And what do you think about all this? Yeah, this is, um, you know, everything just coming together in probably the most um, serious of the action cues. This is where, you know, life is on the line here and it's 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 just not Alex's it's everybody's I mean if bad guys win they go to earth and they'll destroy everything there too so there's um there's stakes in this battle and it's just there's like these huge blasts of orchestral material that plays throughout this um this cue and I also like how it's there's an incorporation of that Alex's first test um, string writing in here as well and but it's 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 exciting but it's it's capturing the seriousness of the of the battle and you know what needs to be done in order to to make sure that that the you know the good guys win and so and we the only time that we then get relief is the cue afterwards where Finally, you get the the big victory march as um, you know the Gunstar uh, you know spins around and flies towards Cameron as you see the big um, the ship crash into the moon 
and you know it's very Star Wars, but it, um, but you know it's that's where the the sense of relief and and fun comes back into it. But this is really a a, a big, massive um, action track, and I and and before I forget, I I really do want to say that I am a massive fan of this recording, and the recording engineer's name Lyle Burbridge and. He didn't do a lot, but I really do think that he recorded two of the best sounding scores in the 80s. One was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which sounds absolutely magnificent. And the other one is uh, The Last Starfighter. And this one sounds absolutely magnificent. Now, I'm not sure whether he went on and continued recording for Safin later on, but... um, yeah, there's just something about the sound that I, I, man, I wish all scores sounded like this. Very clear, very distinct. And of course, you know, we now have a, a newly remastered version of this score through Entrada Records, and it sounds better than it has ever sounded. Just clear, crisp, punchy. Uh, the, you know, the, the big thing is the, the brass really stands out. The trombones just rip. Uh, the low brass sounds incredible. Um, the the recording of the woodwinds just just luscious and and so yeah, he's one of the unsung heroes of this film score because it just sounds absolutely brilliant. And so I kind of wish he had had done more and. Um, he passed away in 2006, so he helped record The Color Purple, The Last Starfighter, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but then he doesn't really have a career after 1985, so I'm really not 100% sure what happened, but um, he recorded some, like, Color Purple sounds great, Last Starfighter sounds great, uh, Indiana Jones, Te- Temple of Doom sounds great, and then he worked on something called Exposed. And so, anyway, I just wanted to say that before uh, before I forget. Well, let's go ahead and appreciate his recording mastery through uh, Craig Saffin's amazing score uh, by playing the cue Death Blossom Ultimate Weapon.
We've come down to an end to the soundtrack essentials. Um, I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing uh, the theme music that you hear. Uh, find his work through xanderscores.com. Lastly, we're going to play Into the Starscape, which is one of the best ending cues uh, in existence because it's just so amazing. Um, this is the grand finale, the conclusion to the exciting space adventure that we've just experienced, and it made all our imaginations soar when seeing this. I mean, I really appreciate this piece as it gives us the grand themes of the film and brings together everything into a tight little package, uh, a whole seven-minute package. And this is one of my favorite cues from the album, and it's probably the most often played uh, on repeat for myself. So I, I really appreciate this. I appreciate the whole score and the film, and it just it works so well together. I know we didn't cover um, Centauri's theme today on the show, but one of the before we. Uh, start getting into like just playing the music and ending the show today uh, one of the interesting things was the EWI that was used in Centauri's theme it was like a clarinet uh, and it was run through a synthesizer but it was mobile like uh, they have U YouTube videos where you like look up EWI uh, and you type in EWI synthesizer, and it's this long, wet, long, um, elongated uh, instrument, and you think that it looks like a giant clarinet, but it's its own instrument, and they used it really well for Centauri's theme. So I, I just, I had to mention that because it's. One of those unique things that Craig Saffin introduced into the score that made Centauri's theme so uh, unique for the film and made him so, um, I guess, believable for who he was in the movie. Um, Eric, what are your thoughts in regard to Into the Starscape? Yeah, I think I mentioned it earlier, just Into the Starscape, hands down... I mean, one of my top five, top ten finale cues to any motion picture. And again, you have Safin bringing the the heart and motion of the film, you know, grounding it back into what matters. And as much as we've just seen this great space battle and, you know, Alex being serenaded by the... Uh, what, were they on Rylos? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, we see that and it's 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 great and but the big thing is that Alex needs to go home. And he has a big decision to make. Does he end his career as a starfighter just like that and then just kind of goes home and 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 leaves the I guess are they called Rylans? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, on their own or or does he go back and and realize that 
you know, this is his destiny. He's got to say goodbye to his family. Well, yeah, but it, the decision of, you know, stay back with the family, stay on Earth, or does he have, or is now his destiny in his life to be this starfighter? You know, now he has purpose. And so he has to make that decision. And it's a, t it's a difficult decision. And, and not again, I, I absolutely love this scene because he, you know, they land at, uh, you know, the starlight, starbright. And, you know, he, he, he takes the elevator down and, and sees everybody again. And his main goal is to bring Maggie with him. Obviously, his, his mind is already made up that he's going back no matter what. And it's a very tough decision because, again, his relationship with not only his mother and his brother and and the rest of the community there, it's his relationship with Maggie that he's willing to sacrifice to go and keep the universe safe. And so when she is not sure about her decision to join him, you know, you see the disappointment in his face, but he's like, okay, but I've got to go. And it's just heartbreaking. And, and Safin is playing playing to that those emotions you can just feel the heartbreak in his in his in his music why can't you just stay maggie i have to leave and i want you to come with me alex hurry well i gotta go um. <sighs> bye Alex, we can't hold off their radar any longer. Yeah, okay. I can do it, Mark. Goodbye, bye. darling. Make it easy. So long. So long, everybody. Bye. 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 But then it begins building to something as Maggie then makes the decision that she's going to go and she has to talk to her grandmother and grandmother's like, you know, you just, just go. Granny. Be sure and right, or whatever it is they do up there. Now, all of a sudden, they embrace, they're back together, and it's just this massive Alex, flourish, Alex. and everything is good in the world. You know, they, they ascend on the elevator. Spaceship takes off. You know, we hear the the call of the Starfighter video game, and Lewis is jumping up on his stool and he's he's ready to battle the game. As the ship takes off, you know, Lewis just looks up. There's all this smoke and backlight and everything, and the music, and he just screams out the word. I'm like, well, there it is. 
that's the heart of the film right there. And as I said, all of a sudden you you've been following Alex this whole time time, but you are then suddenly transported into Lewis's body and and you're that nine-year-old kid who's just seeing all of this enfold uh, in front of your eyes. And it's the most un- unbelievable, remarkable thing that's ever happened. And it's just the reaction is, I think, what every kid, you know, my age at that time was thinking. And it's just the most perfect emotional release. And, you know, the ship takes off and, and Safin then goes back to his main theme and plays that in full. And, and it's, it's wonderful. It's just, you cannot help but leave this film with a giant smile on your face. It's just so, it's a feel-good movie. And you need those films, and there's, you don't get too many of those these days. A lot of things are just always dark, has to, has to be dark, has to be serious, has to be this, but this one's just go for the ride, enjoy it, have a good time, come out smiling, maybe you're whistling a, a theme from the score, and did you enjoy the adventure that we just took you on for the past two hours? And for me, every single time I revisit the film or even revisit this cue, I feel the exact same emotions every single time. This score, in my opinion, is timeless because of that. And and again, it's great to hear Safin uh, have a chance to recap his main theme during the end credits. And it's just... It's movie magic. It's film music magic. It's absolutely stunning. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, uh, Craig Saffin just weaves this brilliant score for us for this adventure movie. And, uh, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. So, um, I mean, we are at the end of an episode... A new era uh, for this show uh, being the essential soundtracks. Uh, you can listen to some most of my newer episodes here on Cinematic Sound Radio. Uh, CinematicSound.net um, You can also listen to my other show uh, Anime Spectacular which recently I just uh, it just dropped the uh, part one and two of uh, Star Wars Visions for the first season. And um, soon I'll have some new material for Anime Spectacular coming um, down the way. Eric, what can you tell the audience about Patreon and other services on Cinematic Sound Radio? Yeah, we uh, we have a Patreon. We have a, a wonderful community over there. So if you, um, you know, feel the need... Or want to support the show uh, head over to patreon.com slash cinematic sound radio um, there's a bunch of tiers there um, the lowest tier is a dollar a month and you know we we thank you on the website we thank you in the show notes um, but there are various different um, tiers that you can select from and um, that includes uh, being a participant in the all request shows that happen. There might be an opening in some of the higher levels where 
you know, you can host a show with me or uh, you can actually program your own show. So you don't necessarily have to host it with me, but you can come up with an hour long playlist and I will play that playlist for you on the show. Uh, one new thing that we are doing, and I've been thinking about this for a long time, and, I, and we're going to start offering exclusive programming over on Patreon. And it's only going to be one particular themed show. And the reason is I want to keep it to a smaller audience than exposing some of this stuff to the entire world. I really want to do make these shows special. And that is doing an absolute deep dive into my collection, over 6,000 albums, but playing those albums that were given to me by composers or, you know, PR people or uh, record labels that were just promotional releases, never been commercially released. Like these are going to be scores and pieces of music that you probably have never heard before. And I've got some gems, but I only want to give this to, you know, a small community and it's going to be centered to or focused for my patrons. So if you become a member, like I said, you can listen to this show for $1 a month. You're going to hear some stuff that genuinely you have never uh, heard before. And I think, uh, I think that's going to be fun, and I think it's going to be worth worth the donation to to hear these shows. So that's going to start up very soon, if if it hasn't already by the time of this show's launch. But I'm really, really excited to to start on that program. That's fantastic. So that will conclude this show for today. So until next time, take care and happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to Tee Public to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.